Hello, and welcome to the inaugural podcast of Sorry, Right Number. I'm your host, Nick, and with me is the always slightly comical Danny. What up? Today we were going to go over the changeling, but first, real quick, we just kind of wanted to go over why we're really doing this and then just go from there. Let you guys get to know us just a little bit better. We just kind of wanted to go ahead and um, join the horror community at large and really just kind of reach out there and just find some like-minded individuals that we can kind of share. Who like to party. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, it was really just, I'm I'm sure you've had that time in your life when people are, you're just talking to people and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I really like horror movies or, oh, I like this that has any inclination with horror. And they're just like... Oh. And you see their eyes glaze over and shift away from you <laughs> as they just mentally snip all ties. But I mean, we just, that that was one of the main reasons. And just to kind of, we really wanted to dig into the meat and potatoes of a lot of this stuff. Just really, like with the Changeling, definitely because it's something that, it has a very good backstory. But I mean, if you really, if you watch the movie, if you look at the posters, nothing really, there's nothing really anywhere on there that says it's a true story. When in reality, um, the actual story writer of the the movie itself... Um, um, the actual writer was Russell Hunter. Cool thing about him was that he actually was... Um, supposedly, this, this all of this happened to him in person. He was renting out this um, this mansion in uh, Colorado, I believe. And all, right. and all well, his crazy experiences happened. But we're going to get into that a little bit later. But let's go ahead and get into the changeling. So it starts on this mountainside. They're pushing their car through the snow. They're all laughing. It's basically like a Norman Rockwell painting. And they push it into this clearing, and there's this random phone booth that's just in the middle of nowhere. It's basically a changeling plot hole or Superman. Basically some Clark Kent shit. (laughs) But, uh, so he goes into this phone booth to call for a tow. I mean, it's great just because you see his eyes as this, this truck is coming around the corner, and he can see the other corner. He sees this car coming out of nowhere. This menacing music starts playing. Literally the most dramatic music you've ever heard in your entire life. And then you just see this truck just plow straight on into his car, and basically, since or no, it, it, it kills his wife and kid. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, dead family. Like, just the most traumatic experience you've ever seen. And then it cuts over to him. I, I don't know if it says it's it's months later, I think. I don't think it says at all. But, you know, and he's like, you know, he's packing to leave and he's getting ready to, you know, to get out of there. Understandably, after this horribly tragic experience and uh, this red ball just drops and just kind of bounces toward him. Nobody touches it. It just kind of comes toward him, which is interesting because in the actual real life event of Russell Hunter, uh, the guy who wrote the changeling, this red ball came keeps coming up over and over again, but we'll get into that later. So he basically moves from New York to Seattle because he has a friend who sees how screwed up he is and he needs a chain of scenery. And he offers him this job in Seattle um, teaching music because, um, as I don't think we've mentioned previously, he's a composer. And so he, you know, he moves to Seattle and, you know, he can tell he's just this, you know, figure in society, this prestigious guy, because, you know, he, they give him this giant mansion, hasn't been lived in in forever. And it's just, it's crazy huge like this thing just goes forever <laughs> right it was it's this house that's being taken care of by the historical society this lady claire norman basically rushes the papers through and gives him this house just trying to 
you know, sucks some dick. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but it it turns into he he gets this house, and I mean, it's a gorgeous house. I mean, if you're super into wood, it's it's wood porn. This house is gorgeous. Just oak everything, and huge ceilings, and oh my god, just beautiful. But as he's moving in, he's he's playing on this piano, and this is the first instance. It's really interesting because this door opens, and you kind of see the significance of this door opening, and this creepy stuff is going to start happening right as this door kind of opens you can see the house is kind of alive of a sort and he's playing this part on this piano and as the door opens he goes to play this key and it's just dead like you just hear the like the clink and it just won't like the the song won't resolve and this happens like a couple more times and it just won't yeah he's trying to play the key but nothing happens so he gets he gets called away and then the camera just zooms in on this key and this menacing music starts up again i mean this music basically makes this movie creepy literally without this it like this movie would be nothing without the music and then all of a sudden you just hear this like the most menacing thing ever only time a piano has ever been scary in its (laughs) entire life and the key just like plays (laughs) it's yeah like i said the music just makes this scene as he's as he's going through at one point every every time at 6 a.m he wakes up because this this pounding keeps happening right at 6 a.m and the second his feet touch the floor it just stops and like all these all the workers that are trying to like renovate and make the house like more livable they're just like oh no it's just an old house it's probably the boilers it's probably you know the floors the house is settling no you're fine you're fine you're fine and so you know he's he's kind of exploring and then we see a third instance of that that red ball and he finds it again He, he finds it again in one of the old desks as he's putting his stuff away which was definitely there when he got there so no way that that it could have gotten in there any other way and right as he's going through this he hears this faucet start turning on and he goes to turn off the faucet and then he hears water coming from somewhere up above and this house is huge i mean i i would hate to be this guy's water bills <laughs> like oh my god this place is huge and and he kind of trails it down he hears it and he goes all the way up to the third floor and right when he gets to the third floor he finds tucked away in one of the side rooms he sees this tub that's pouring full of water and right as he goes to turn it off he gets this flash of this boy under the water and freaks out for a second <laughs> well, just stares at it well, like anybody else i would just scream like, but you just away. have this guy that's just the way i want to react to anything he's just like backs away slowly just like nope just backs away slowly closes the door like uh-uh not today satan <laughs> and as he sees this he goes to the historical society to find out what he can about the place and claire norman says she has no idea and there's this lady somewhere in the back who just oh comes God. up to him and is like so terrifying this lady is the creepiest presence she basically tells him that the house doesn't want anybody there the house doesn't like people yeah and that's when he finds out that Claire Norman basically rushed the papers through for him. And right as she says, you don't want to live in this house, it cuts to the front of this place, this huge house, and you really can tell how big it is. And right as he comes outside, this glass just shatters and falls at his feet and he looks up and he can tell that this glass like fell out of the attic and you can kind of tell that the house is trying to you can tell it's trying to communicate with him it's anyway like trying it can. to get his attention it's, and it's really creepy because it breaks from the inside out like almost like someone threw a rock to through it so obviously like it's like oh kind of that oh shit is there something in the house kind of moment so he goes up to the third floor and he he's trying to find exactly where it is because it's just covered in rooms this place and then he tracks it to where 
where he thinks it is. And when he's looking, he finds that it looks like it's coming from this one area. So he opens the door and it's this random closet. He's kind of looking around. He's trying to figure it out. And right then he kind of sees this sliver of light. So he just just rips this closet Com- apart. Completely a normal thing to do. It just starts ripping boards off this closet that he's staying in. And then he uncovers this door, but there's this huge lock on the door. He finds a hammer and basically he starts pounding on this lock. And as he's pounding on this lock, you start to hear this pounding in the house that he keeps hearing at 6 a.m. It's just like happening at the same time. You can tell for a second he's like, oh shit, do I really want to go up here? But he does, of course. And so he finds this huge, long, super steep, like creepy ass dark hallway where again, normal human reaction would be like, turn around and just nope the fuck yeah, out he of op- there. He opens up and there's this dark staircase leading up to this attic torture room, basically. Oh my God. That's what it looks like. But he goes up there and... And the first thing you see is this creepy, just cob-filled room. And this, like, super terrifying-looking, like, sanatorium-style wheelchair, which we'll get to more later (laughs) about that stupid wheelchair. He finds this this journal and it has CSB on the front. And as he looks into it, he sees it's it's a child's book and he can tell it her writing about living in this place. He also comes across this music box. Which what's so creepy about this music box is as you know he turns it and he starts cranking it up and starts playing it, is the melody that comes out has been the exact same like tune that he's been writing this entire time on this p- creepy piano downstairs that the keys that won't play. Because he thinks he's making up this piece, but then he realizes it's it's from this music box the whole time. Like, so the, like house the house is, is trying to tell him about this piece of music. So yeah, like getting into his subconscious somehow or telepathically trying to reach him through it. He reaches out to Claire, who has no idea about it. So they go to... They go to research it at this place and they start going through the microfiche and um, they're finding out more and more about, you know, this child whose journal it is. And they realize that she had been in a car crash and that's how she died died. So he assumes that she's trying to reach out to him because he went through a similar experience. So he goes to this research place and it's it's really interesting because it goes through, oh yeah, 99% of all psychics are complete frauds. Yeah. Yeah. But he was like, the 1% can do some really scary shit. So he's able to get one of these ladies. One percenters. No pun intended. (laughs) To come to his house. They're the true 1%. (laughs) He gets her to come to his house. And basically, they do this seance. And it's this creepy. I don't even know if this might have inspired Insidious. I love this scene. It's so scary. Um, But, you know, as they're going through the seance and and the, the, you know, the psychic is going through the stuff, she has this, like, book that she's, like, scribbling in. And it's it's literally almost framed for frame it reminds me of that first insidious to where she's just she's just scribbling down whatever she hears from the beyond and she's like asking what his name is and she's just scribbling and they just find out that the person who's actually trying to reach john isn't this csb from the beyond it's actually this little boy named joseph carmichael and so they start um investigating more and more and finding out more about um joseph and he's getting more and more flashes from from the boy and from the house and it's almost like the house is 
like building up strength in some ways. Right. And he he actually has during the seance, he has this recording machine that records everything. And he's listening to the playback once they leave. And he start and he actually hears this as they're doing the seance. He's hearing the whispers of this boy trying to tell them things. And right as he's listening, he gets this flash and he sees what actually happened, that this boy's father murdered him by drowning him in a bathtub in a bathtub oh it's it's a mortifying scene super super messed up um and then as we go through and we find out a little bit more about it he calls claire to the house and he asks her he says as he got this flash one of the things he got was sacred heart and claire tells him that was actually an orphanage so they dig into it and they're able to find out that the boy's grandfather hated this guy Joseph Carmichael's dad. Basically, they find out that this grandfather had left all the money to Joseph, this sickly kid. He said if anything happened to Joseph, everything was going to charity because this grandfather's daughter had died and he hated the son. So he's basically like, you're not getting anything. So he leaves everything to Joseph, which, you know, as as we kind of come to find out, like the wheelchair is his and then he's super, super sickly, um, you know, at five, six years old and unlikely to reach adulthood. Um, so his dad goes ahead and drowns him. And then just goes to the adoption agency. Apparently you don't need to sign any papers or anything. Just picks out a new kid. Like, Mine. <laughs> Dibs. And, and basically says he took Joseph to Europe. The and, new Joseph. And this is right when World War One is happening. So he says, oh no, I was stuck in Europe. And then he comes back when Joseph is 18 and basically says he made this miraculous recovery. Because, you know, suddenly his legs and chest and everything just works perfectly now. So... John goes to, he's trying to figure out because he also gets this flash of this ranch. So he goes to, what is it? It's like a map place. What is <laughs> the archives, records? The archives and the records building. And they have this whole outlying of the ranch and he sees on the map of this place, he's like, where's this well? And they look into it and they're like, oh, this well Boarded used to be up, there. You know? Yeah, they built this house over where this well was. So he goes to this house where it was built over this well and he finds out from the person living there, the her owner, Miss Gray. Gray, that her daughter has been having these horrible nightmares the exact time that the seance happened. And he's, she's getting all these visits from Joseph's spirit as well. And she says she's going to think about it because it still seems kind of crazy. But that night, Joseph, who's apparently he's making leaps and bounds in the... <laughs> In the poltergeist Astral, yeah. <laughs> Astral <laughs> projection. He visits the daughter again at this house and leads her into... Where the well is in the house, essentially, where it's buried and underneath. And it basically shows him being hidden, or his body, like, reaching up, trying to cry for help from the well. Trying to get out. And, and so she basically calls John Russell and is like, yeah, j- j- just come dig up the well. And they find the body, obviously, and so they call the police, of course. Um, but, you know, the police are like... Like, uh, how the hell did you know this was here? Like, that's crazy talk. Because he he digs up this well and they find Joseph's remains, Mm -hmm. which after this amount of time, I'm pretty sure the bones would be there anymore there'd just be like little tiny bits and pieces but that is one thing that is a, is a little incongruous because like the bones are still kind of like held together to form like a shape where obviously after what 50 something years they probably wouldn't be held together anymore but he digs up joseph's body they find it in there and they call the police and the police are like how'd you know this was here and he's just like no no idea don't know doesn't matter but then claire asks him you know like why didn't you tell them he's like i didn't have any proof so he comes back that night 
fight and basically breaks into the place. And Which is just a great thing to do after you've convinced them, like, oh, yeah, no, it's great. Let me rip up your floor, dig up your well, find a dead body, call the police, get them to deem your house a freaking crime scene. Now I'm going to break back into the crime scene. <laughs> And go back down the well. He's a brave man. Yes, he is. <laughs> but he he digs around in this well and he just cannot find... Because he, he keeps getting this flash of this metal, this... It's like a christening... A christening, cr- christening metal, metal, yeah. That the boy was wearing. He's trying to find this metal to prove that it's this boy's body basically to prove the identity of the boy because there's there's really no identifying marks at this point so basically he gives up trying to find this metal but right then somehow the metal just kind of creepily just springs up out of the dirt it looks like a straight-up snake coming out of the dirt which must be symbolism for something just terrifying almost just like inches its way out and so he he basically takes this metal he goes to find because the actual joseph the one that was brought back at 18 is now a senator so you know this really big prominent feature in the local community and in in the state itself and so he's trying to confront the senator like hey uh what do you know do you know that you aren't who you think you are essentially and they basically hold him off but the senator sees this medal and so he sends this one of the captains from the police to go get it and this captain confronts john at, at the mansion and is like hey like i know you have it y- you know you well we know you have it you have 24 hours to give it back convince the captain that like oh he stole it like this is mine and he stole it from me and joseph who's getting stronger by the minute basically just murder faces the captain well because there's a mysterious car crash and captain dewitt dies after he leaves the house so starting to feel like a theme here with all <laughs> these mysterious car crashes after hearing about the captain's death the senator's like okay john i'll meet you so john goes to the senator's house and as he's going to the senator's house claire actually goes to try and find john at the house to kind of try to talk to him about all of a sudden she hears john's voice coming from upstairs as joseph's trying to lead her upstairs to this attic and she's like i don't want to go up there because joseph is becoming stronger and stronger is like enticing her to come up and so she makes it all the way to the to the top of the stairs in the attic and that's when like this crazy <laughs> <laughs> chase scene happens and if it was basically this wheelchair the one we were mentioning earlier that looks like a sanatorium starts chasing her down the stairs <laughs> straight up it is just at one great <laughs> literally if it was not for the terrifying like spooky music this would just be the funniest thing in the world because as she's running in those stairs it literally looks like someone picks up the wheelchair and just throws, throws it, it at her. her and just smacks her and she just rolls down the stairs just hilarious looks like something would be on world star like just terrible. And at the same time, John is telling the senator about all this stuff that happened, and the senator is just like, no, you're crazy. This couldn't have happened. And John's just like, look, I- I've done everything. I've, I've he gives my him, piece. He gives him the recordings from the seance. He gives him the medal, and he's like, it's all yours. I like, I wash my hands of this. And he goes back to the house to find Claire. And then he finds her at the bottom of the stairs, and he basically drags her out. And at this point, Joseph, the house is just going crazy, because he's just so enraged from all this that's happening and john runs upstairs to try and calm him down calm him down i guess, I guess. and 
Joseph basically just shoves him over this banister and he like smacks to the first floor. And right at the same time, the senator is like looking at the metal and it looks exactly like the same metal that he has. And of course, like it's placed super dramatically over this like paint por- painting of a portrait of his father. And he's all like, you can just tell. Like, and this is such a He's like, good my actor. father wouldn't have killed anybody. He, you know? he couldn't have. He couldn't have. My father was a good man. And, like, and at the same time, it's like Joseph uses all the power he has left to pull like an astral projection of the senator's like consciousness and to the house and John just sees the senator going up the stairs as this flame just it's awesome but this flame just kind of goes around the banister and just like the house set it just goes up in a blaze and literally all you're hearing is this little child like almost screaming like my metal my metal like freaking out just completely enraged that this imposter this changeling just took over his whole life and he forces the senator the replacement for joseph he just makes him watch as this father that he's always known as a good man just drown this kid in the bathtub just straight up for money cold-hearted yeah claire and john they they see what happens they just they just run to the senator's house and right then the senator just has a heart attack and just dies and so as claire and john arrive at the senator's house they're literally like pulling his body from the house and like putting it you know covered up in the ambulance you see like his hand kind of fall out so you know that it's him from like this sheet that's been pulled over his face and they're they're taking him out of the house and so Claire and John are just like oh shit like what's going on and Right then it just cuts to the next morning and you just see the mansion is just completely burned down. And right in the middle of this this wreckage, you see the kind of burnt down wheelchair just in the middle of everything. And right when you think it's over, it zooms in on the music box and the wreckage. And it like clicks open and starts playing that same song like, oh shit, Joseph's not gone. That's that's basically the changeling. We recommend it highly. But the really cool thing about this, like we said uh, a little bit earlier, is that the whole thing, it really wasn't billed as this. But the the person that wrote the story, Russell Hunter. John Russell, Russell Hunter, you get it. He claims he actually had this experience that happened to him. Even though, like we said, it nothing in the posters. You don't see anything anywhere in the movie that we could find. We watched it from end to end and nowhere does it say it's based on a true story. Well, so I don't fact. know if they were just like, this dude's crazy. They probably didn't want that kind of press like associated with that. Maybe they didn't realize how big like real life stories were going to be. Well, basically what he said has happens is... Well, when he was a music arranger for CBS, which is probably where he gets the whole inspiration for him being a composer, he said he went back to Colorado to help his family because they ran like this lodge and he needed somewhere to stay. And he found this mansion, uh, I think it was at 1739 East 13th Avenue. In case you guys want to Google Maps that shit. <laughs> well, the place isn't there anymore. They tore it down. I know. See a nice apartment complex. Or and he said he station. only got it for $200, this whole McMansion. But basically, he said starting on February 9th, 1969, he said all these strange phenomenon began to happen. So crazy, like bangings and crashings. And and that's where he got it from. He would say every morning at 6 a.m., all of these things would start just pounding. And the second he put his feet to the ground, it just stopped instantly. But he said faucets would turn on by themselves and doors would randomly open. Walls would harshly vibrate. And he said shortly after this, him and an architect friend suddenly uncovered this hidden staircase on the third floor. And they said they found this trunk containing a nine-year-old's school books, and there was a journal from a century ago. 
And it's talking about, you know, this whole disabled boy kept in isolation. He claimed that the seance revealed the story of the sickly child who had, you know, was an heir to a fortune of his grandfather. So you can start to see, obviously, where we're going with this. It's almost exactly the same plot. And this boy wrote about his favorite ball. And Russell Hunter was like, a few nights later, this red ball just randomly dropped down the stairs. I mean, this was like the beginning of the 70s. I'm just saying, cocaine is a hell of a drug. (laughs) But he said he looked into it, and with the seance and everything, it showed him that the parents had killed this child and adopted another one. The dead boy apparently revealed directions to uh, the specific house, and, you know, he gained permission to go and dig, and he found, you know... He found the remains, and he found this metal. Didn't call the police, because apparently finding dead bodies isn't something you just call the police about. But he said right after this, the house was going crazy, and it suddenly became violent, and glass was just blowing up, and part of this glass just shattered his artery and his wrist... He he never went back to the house only uh, once more to uh, to see it demolished and stated when demolished, the walls of the wing containing his bedroom collapsed and crushed the man to death operating the bulldozer. So, like, obviously something was pissed off. Which, when I looked into it, I couldn't find anything regarding this man being crushed to death. So, take this, obviously, this uh, this real true-life story as with a little bit of a grain of salt, obviously, because hopefully there should have been a record. Well, we did look into it, and I could find that Russell Hunter's parents did have a... They did have a lodge in Colorado in the area. I couldn't find anything regarding him staying at the mansion. But then again, back then, they didn't keep a lot of records of that kind of stuff, so... But when we looked... And we looked into it a little more, and we found that the only people who'd lived there, um, a Henry Treat Rogers and his wife Kate actually built the home in the early 1900s. And they had like a niece and a nephew. Um, the niece, Francis Clark Ristine, and uh, the nephew, Henry Treat Rogers II. Which kind of confuses me because they said they were niece and nephew, but I'm kind of like, this dude, this Henry Treat Rogers II is named after you. So apparently they were very close. Well, and it was very odd because... Allegedly, Henry Treat Rogers II was actually killed in World War I in France, though when we looked further, there was also a death certificate of him dying in Cincinnati. So a little bit of um, incongruity there. And another interesting note is that uh, Francis Clark Ristine, the the niece, actually worked as a secretary in a Denver's orphan's home, maybe adding a little bit of that sacred heart to the story. Which is a little interesting because he said, you know, they killed this boy and they adopted another one and basically trained him to be exactly like the first one. Which, I mean, it's a little weird because you have this Henry who allegedly died, you know, during World War One. He was a soldier, but then it also says that he died in a random place in America, in Cincinnati. And then you have this niece who worked at the orphanage, so it, it kind of... A little too many similarities just to kind of, to not give you a little bit of a chill down the spine, at least. And it's interesting because this house was actually built on an old cemetery, which after a time, the cemetery went into disrepair, and they wanted to build a nice park and, you know, they wanted to build this housing with Henry Treat Rogers and his wife wanting to build a house there. And so they moved all these... These bodies and, like, families were asked to move their loved ones. But, like, there was a contract um, for the unclaimed bodies. They contracted out a undertaker named McCovern. Well, that's not a creepy name. 
who would be paid $1.90 a box to move these remains to another cemetery. And he often found it necessary to move one of these human remains in up to three boxes. Her grave, which he was fired for. So the moral lesson in all of this is uh, don't trust your undertaker or at least tip well. (laughs) And at the very least, before you go into house, make sure you kind of know a little bit about it before you find out a bunch of people were murdered there. And, you know, avoid Indian burial grounds. Or maybe it's inspiration for you to make a feature film. Maybe you'll get some money out of it. But any which way. This was, uh, yeah, that was The Changeling. And... Of course, again, this is the podcast. Sorry, right number. I am again, Danny. And I'm Nick. You can follow us on Instagram at sorry, right number. Until next time. Thank you for listening.